Be seated. This morning we're going to uh, spend some time looking at the second reading that we had from the book of Hebrews. And if you'd like to look it up in the Bible, I think it was 848. Was that the page, I think? If you'd like to look it up, and we're, I just wanted us to look at these particular verses. In the verses coming up to this, that the writer of Hebrews is writing to a church under enormous pressure. You know, sometimes we as Christians feel that we're under lots of pressure and persecution and difficulties and problems, and we're the first Christians ever to be like that. <laughs> we'll go back and read from the very beginning. The other thing, when I feel that things are really going, you know, really difficult and hard, I go back and read the Gospels and I find the one thing Jesus promised to the disciples is that things are going to be hard, isn't it? He said, if they hated me, then they're going to hate you. That's what's going to happen. There's going to be uh, wolves in sheep's clothing who are going to come in amongst you and their aim and purpose is to draw you away from me. Isn't that what he says? That's, That's the aim and purpose of the evil one. He's going to work from within to draw you away from me is what he's going to do and to break you up. And that's why Jesus then talked about himself as being the good shepherd. And he talked about the good shepherd looks after his sheep and cares for his sheep and encourages. And he said, I am the vine, you are the branches. And constantly he's saying to them, you must remember your connection is with me. Your connection is not with a religious system. Do you you know, it's, it's not a religion that I'm calling you to be part of. I'm calling you to be joined to me. Do you and to know me and to love me and to trust me is what he's saying. And as, as the writer of the Hebrews is writing all about our Lord Jesus in the early verses, he, he then comes to these chapters 5 and 6, and, and you can, he doesn't tell us exactly what was happening in the church, but it's clear that many were falling away. Many were doubting. Many were turning off to other things. Do you know, they, it, it seems as though people were coming in with lots of new newfangled ideas. Do, do you know? Um, newfangled ideas about angels, newfangled ideas about special feasts, newfangled ideas about lots of different things. And each of those things were drawing them away from their commitment to Jesus. And that's what the writer is talking about. He's saying here, hey, don't be fooled by all of this. Some of you have actually been fooled, and that is sad, very sad that they've actually turned away. But remember where you stand. And where you stand are on the, are in the sure promises that you have in Jesus himself. That's where you stand. Now it's interesting, in this bit in the end of chapter 6, and he's going to come back to this as he works on through the book of Hebrews, but at this particular point he brings their focus back and said, I, your focus needs to be on Jesus. And it's interesting, to make the point he talks about Abraham. He talks about Abraham. Notice there he begins in verse 13, when God made his promise to Abraham. In other words, he's saying the promises of God is not just something unique, as though God has never ever done this before. This is the way God has dealt with his people from the very beginning. He speaks clearly to his people. He gives clear, straightforward promises to his people. And he fulfills those promises. And he said, let me go back and remind you about Abraham. It's interesting, in the New Testament, there are more than 70 references to Abraham. 
And Abraham is referred to in each one of the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke and John. In the book of Acts, Romans, Galatians, Hebrews, James, 1 Peter, all the, all the way through, Abraham's referred to. And he's often referred to, not just as an, some person in the past, but often how God dealt with Abraham is often used as part of the argument of how God continues to fulfill his promises and continues to speak to his people and lead his people through his word and fulfills his word amongst his people. In other words, it's, it's God spoke to Abraham in a personal way to follow him personally. And Jesus, it's saying, God in Christ Jesus speaks to us in a personal way to follow him personally. It's interesting, the quote that he makes from the book of Genesis when God made his promise to Abraham that he would bless him, that comes from chapter 22 of Genesis because in Genesis there's three times that God renews the promise to Abraham. I will surely bless you and give you many descendants. Abraham is put forward as a clear example of what it means to have faith and trust God and not simply to believe the promise, but to act on the promise. That's the point of Abraham, of not just simply hearing, not just simply believing, but acting, fulfilling it, living it out in his life. And we're called, in in the New Testament, the spiritual children of Abraham. That's the model, that's the model of faith and commitment. And the most important thing that comes out about Abraham is that he persevered. Under God, he hung in there through all the ups and all the downs of his life. You remember, Abraham was called with his family to leave Ur and to come to this new promised land. And God promised that he would bless him and through his descendants, the nations of the earth would be blessed. And God slowly put forward to him that he's going to have a son and it was going to be through this son that the blessing would come. Now, even when the promise came to Abraham, Sarah had not been able to bear children and even when the promise came, she was too old to bear children in any case. Do you, so if you can you imagine yourself, Abraham? Do you, you know, I mean, there's lots of promises of God. We sit there and read them and think, oh yes, God can do that, do you, you know because he's doing it all the time, all around us. But with Abraham, here is an old man that God gives this special promise. He gives the promise that through his wife, an older lady, past childbearing, had not been able to have children in any case, you know, and God promises that he's going to give a son. Now, the promise is not fulfilled immediately at all. It goes on for quite a few years before the son is finally born. And we read about the life of Abraham up and down like a yo-yo. And you know what a yo-yo, don't you? You know, and I think that's our life too, isn't it? Oh, Oh, that's mine. Let me speak for myself. But is that true for you as well or not? Life goes up and down a bit, doesn't it? It's not nice and plain sailing, is it? You have good days and bad days. And when you read about Abraham, he had some really bad days, can I tell you? Um, he, he, he told a few whoppers, you know, a few lies to, 
to try to save his head. You know, they were down in Egypt because of famine. And he thought, now, Sarah's a pretty good looking, even though she's on the little on the older side, she's good looking. And someone's going to take her and they're going to get rid of me to get her. And so therefore, I, let, let's, he talks to Sarah and let, let's agree that we'll say you're just my sister. And so therefore they won't attack me at all. Uh, he, he, he had his up, he had some bad downs, really bad downs. And then he had those special times of blessing that God gave him. But finally, they're back in the promised land, and finally the son is born. And then one day, God calls him to take his son and to go to the mount and there to offer his son as a sacrifice. I, I, as I try to think this through, I think, dear me, um, I'm glad the Lord made me Peter Tasker and not Abraham, do you? If you know what I mean. Uh, that was an enormous test that Abraham went through. And, um, and he comes and he fulfills. And just at the last moment, the Lord stays his hand and said, Abraham, I really know where your heart is. And the sacrifice, there's the ram caught in the thicket. And the sacrifice is made. And it's at that point that this promise of Genesis 22:17 is made. That's when the promise is renewed. The promise is, I will surely bless you and give you many, excuse me, and give you many descendants. You know, as I've said, as I read through from the first chapter of Genesis, and you read about Noah and Lot and, and all the rest, they're Adam and Eve, it's when I come to chapter 12 and I'm beginning to read about Abraham, I begin to read about someone who I feel I understand what he's going through. You're, it's really someone like us, seeking to please God, seeking to understand what God's saying to him and seeking to obey it, having lots of ups and lots of downs, needing God's love and care to patiently and how God needs to renew the promise to him, you know, that he feels, yes, I'm on the right track, you know, I am right, I am on the right track. But he perseveres, he hangs in, and that's why, that's what these verses are talking about. It says, when God made his promise to Abraham, since there was no one greater for him to swear by, he swore by himself, saying, I will surely bless you and give you many descendants. And so after waiting patiently, Abraham received what was promised. The writer then goes to apply this for you and me in understanding the promise. He says there, with this, with this idea of making an oath with the promise, he says, men swear by someone greater than themselves and the oath confirms what is said and puts an end to all argument because God wanted to make the unchanging nature of his purpose very clear to the heirs of what was promised. He confirmed it with an oath. So the writer is now talks about this oath, this promise. So he's talked about Abraham. Now he wants to talk about us. And he wants to apply it to us. And he proceeds to explain that about humans what oaths mean, swearing on oath, and what this means, and what this means as far as what God is talking about himself. And he is saying God swearing on an oath, the promises he gives the promise to us, should give us grounds of tremendous encouragement and grounds of tremendous assurance. There is a sense in which it's sad that we as human beings have to swear on oath. That 
every word that we speak can't be believed. Do you, I wonder if you've noticed that sometimes when we're chatting with each other and we're about to say something and we say, now look, I really mean this. Have you ever said that or not? You know? Um, or, or we sit and say, now look, this is really true. Does that mean everything else was a lie? Do, have you ever stopped and thought about that? You, you know? Um, within, within Australian culture, um, every culture has a saying. I'm sure you've got sayings in your own for this. Uh, within Australian, we would say, this is fair dinkum. Do you, right? This is fair dinkum is a word that Australians would use. And I'm sure you've got words that you use. Every, every language has. Everyone is aware that our hearts, that we're not always speaking the whole truth. Do you? And so when there's something we really want to be sure about, you know, we really, we want the person to know that as far as I'm, as far as I'm aware, this is 100% the truth. And so that, therefore we say, this is fair income, is what we would say. Or listen, this is really true. What I want to tell you is what we would do. Or if you come into a courtroom, you come and you swear an oath that the evidence I'm going to give is the truth, the whole truth and nothing but the truth, isn't it? That, that's what we're saying. So that's what the oath is. That, that's what the writer's talking about here. And he's saying that when God gave the promise to Abraham, the amazing thing is that God can just speak the word. He doesn't have to say, now listen here, what I'm about to tell you is fair income. Do you, he doesn't have to do that. He doesn't have to say, now, now this is really true, because God can't speak a lie. You know, everything God says is true. And we should trust him and know that, shouldn't we? You know, that God's word is true. We ought to know that. But what the writer is saying is that God knows our hearts and he knows how fickle we are as human beings, do you know? that graciously, graciously, he's not only given the word, spoken the word, but he's also made an oath. He's also made an oath. He's sworn this promise under oath. Now, what the writer is saying, if you're going to make an oath, you need to say it in the name of someone greater than you. So, um, you, you either make an oath uh, on the Bible in some courts in, in Western countries, or some people say, look, I swear by my mother. Do, have you heard that? I swear by my mother um, that, that this. And that's an oath. You're, you're saying, mum's over me, and if I'm wrong, I know I'm in trouble. Is that? And she can knock me on the head. Is that right? So you, you, it, they, they, we, we, you swear by someone greater. And the author is saying, well, who is greater than God? There's no one. So therefore God swore the oath before himself. Does that make, do you see what the passage is saying? And, and the, what, what the writer is saying is that God didn't need to do that at all. His word is sufficient. Yeah. But knowing the fickleness of us as human beings and knowing how up and down and crazy we can be, God said this promise is so sure you not only have my word for it, I swear an oath upon my own name that I will fulfill this word. And this oath and this swearing was giving was given because the Lord knows our heart and knows how we 
how we need encouragement day by day, don't we? We need to constantly be encouraged and supported. He understands human weakness is what it's talking about. And therefore, having chosen to swear by an oath, he swore by himself. Now, notice what it says. It says, because God wanted, because God wanted to make the unchanging nature of his purpose very clear to the heirs of what he promised. Now, those words there, when it says, because God wanted, it means that God didn't have to do this, but he made a deliberate choice to do this. It's a choice God himself made that we can have a sure hope, you know, a sure positive hope in Christ Jesus. And why? Look at verse 18. God did this so that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled to take hold of the hope offered to us may be greatly encouraged. It's interesting, the writer is writing to us. Do you know, this is for us for us to see the promise, the way God did it, was that we would be greatly encouraged. And that, that word really means strengthened, you know, uh, to give and power to stand against anything. That's the concept behind this word, that we're so sure, we can be so positive about the promises. And the two unchangeable things, the word of promise and God's oath, and God's oath. God cannot lie, the word is enough, but the oath is given. As, as it were, a double assurance for us. And he says, because we have this hope, this is the hope we have, and that's the promise that God gives. You know, in the English language, uh, hope can have a lot of different meanings. Do you, you know, it can, hope can be something that, you know, within you, it's something you have with, I have hope, do you, you know, I have, I have hope, I have trust. Or it can be sub, uh, objective. It's what you have the hope in. So it's more to do with the external rather than the internal. And here in this context, it's very, very clear. It's to do with the external, not with the internal. It's not to do with some experience you've got within in this context here. The hope is based in God's word. The hope is not me and how I feel about the word. Do you how I feel about is a bit irrelevant here. You know, it's not my personal feelings about things. The hope that I've got is the hope in what God himself has said and in God himself. It's the external that it's talking about. It's the objective promises of God ultimately, as we see in the next verse, wrapped up in Jesus Christ himself. This hope is in a person and that person is Jesus Christ himself. He is the promise. He is the promise. The promise is not a thing. The promise is a person. Jesus himself is the fulfilment of the promise. He is the hope. And therefore we put ourselves in, put ourselves in the hope that God is giving us. And that hope is Jesus himself. And that flows straight in to the next verse, verse 19. We have God's anchor. He says, we have this hope as an anchor for the soul, firm and secure. It enters the inner sanctuary behind the curtain where Jesus, who went before us, has entered on our behalf. He has become a high priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. The curtain he's talking about here 
is that in, in, the, in the temple you had the outer area where people came to worship. You then had the Holy of Holies where the, the, the tabernacle was and there was this curtain that hung in front of it. And the only one to go inside there was the high priest once a year after the sacrifice had been offered to go in and to sprinkle the blood. That was in the presence of God himself, as it were. You know? And the people stood outside. And you remember that when Jesus hung on the cross and when Jesus cried, it is finished. The penalty has been paid for our sin. What happened to that curtain? Do you remember? It was torn from top to bottom. And the way was made open. Can you see that's the reference he's talking about here? That our, our hope is Jesus himself. We're not standing outside. Our hope is in Jesus who is right inside. Do you, does that make sense? So we're not outside wondering what's going on in there. Do you, what's taking place? Is the promise really fulfilled? Is it going to be fulfilled? Do you know all the, the ifs and buts and maybes? No. But what, the curtain has been ripped. It, the promise is Jesus himself. He is the one who is now inside. Everything opened up and full access. It's all open to be seen. You know, nothing is now closed. It's all open to be seen. We have this hope as an anchor, firm and secure. And we have it as an anchor, an anchor. And that anchor is Jesus himself. And Jesus himself crucified, risen, ascended to the right hand of the Father in glory. That Jesus, that hope is right in the presence of of the Father himself. Jesus himself who's paid the price, raised in glory, ascended to the Father's right hand and who goes before us. In other words, as that way has been opened, Jesus is the promise. We're the one, we're joined to him and as we share in his death and we're therefore going to share in his resurrection and, and we have great confidence that we're going to share in his glory. You know, one of the things that years and years ago as a teenager, studying God's word, really blew me away. You know, I, I used to think of the second coming that we as Christians would sit round and watch Jesus come. Do you, does that make sense? We have lots of crazy ideas, don't we, as you're growing up? And watch him come, we'd hang around as spectators, cheering, you know, as it all happens, you know, as it were. And, and when I read the scripture, I know we're not going to be doing that at all. We're actually in Christ Jesus going to be taken up and be part of that glory. Isn't that mind blowing? Does that, don't you have, that's us, idiotic, stupid human beings, if I could use the term. Isn't that what we are and who we are and how we stumble and fall and constantly do stupid things? And yet God has so loved us that we have forgiveness and, and brought into his presence through the death of Jesus. We know life, and we're going to be right in the middle of it all and be part of the glory, you know? And that's what he's talking about, this hope here. And that's Jesus who is our forerunner. Just as we're assured of forgiveness, we're assured of resurrection, we're assured of sharing in that glory in Christ Jesus. And for those who have this commitment, we have an anchor for the soul. And what is our anchor while we're here on the storms of life, here on earth, till we go to be with the Lord. The anchor is none other than Jesus himself. You know, when I thought about this anchor, 
on Sydney Harbour, we have lots of ferries running around, you, you know, and you can go for a ferry ride and all of that, and these ships coming and going. And, and all of a sudden I noticed that every one of them has an anchor, but most of them are rusted. You, they just sit there, you know, on the, on the front of the ship, you know, and, um, and therefore in Sydney Harbour it seems as though you don't use the anchor very much, do you? They tie up to a wharf. Do you know, does that make sense? And I thought, well, what, why would you have an anchor? When do you need an anchor? Not being a seafarer, I fly rather than go by sea, right? So, but when do you use an anchor? The anchor is needed when you're in a storm. Isn't that when the anchor's needed? That you don't get tossed around and just pushed by the storm all over the place. Out goes the anchor, you know, and to hold firm. And you're hoping the anchor's going to go down, not just sit in sand and you just fly along, you know, and in the sand. You hope it's going to go down and grab somewhere, isn't that? That's the idea. That's why it's shaped the way it is. So it can grab onto something down underneath there and stop the ship being pulled away, you know, and being lost. And that's the aim of an anchor. And therefore, we're, as we go through the storms of life, I'd be staggered if you don't go through storms. Am I right? I think we all have our good days, bad days, our ups, our downs, our fears, our worries, our troubles. All of that occurs to everyone. Is, is God really real? Are the promises really there? Are they really going to be fulfilled? Every one of us goes through that. And the writer is saying, just stop and listen to what I've been saying to you, is what he's saying. Now remember, you have an anchor. The anchor's not you. The anchor's not your faith and trust. The anchor's not some special intelligence that you've got that no one else has got here in KL. But that's not the anchor. The anchor's not that you can pass a Bible exam. That's not the anchor. The anchor is none other than Jesus himself. And when you go on in the book, he goes on to say, okay, you need to understand more about Jesus. That's what you need to understand. Your relationship and understanding with him needs to grow and mature. Because as that does, you become more and more committed to the anchor, is it? And you'll feel safe with the anchor. Do you? you will feel safe as you build your confidence in the anchor. Do you? Then you will calm down a bit. <laughs> you'll calm down a bit and know that no matter what the storm is, this anchor is not going to give way. There's no weak link in this anchor. Do you? Because the anchor is none other than Jesus himself. It's, it's a wonderful word of encouragement, isn't it? Do you think? I, I, well, you can see I think it is. It's a great word of encouragement. And, and all the ups and downs, and you wonder what's going on, why is this falling apart, why are these people who profess Christ really doing crazy things and arguing and fighting, why is this happening here? It, it doesn't solve all those things, but it helps me to realise that God is in control that God is working out a plan and purpose, and that my personal security is Jesus. And he is the one who's not only died, not only risen, not only ascended, but is in glory. And that, as I've shared in his death, I'll share in his resurrection, and I'll share in that glory. And that's secure, because that anchor is right up in glory itself right now. Do you I'm not asked to believe a fairy tale. I'm asked to believe what Jesus has already done. Abraham is the great example. If you think you've got things tough and God's calling you to have faith through tough times, go back and read Abraham. huh? 
Go back and read Abraham. You, you don't know what tough times are, isn't that, isn't that right? When we go back and read Abraham, we don't know what tough times really are. Go back and read, God was faithful to Abraham. Do you know? Can you trust God to be faithful to you? That's what the writer is saying. Can you really trust? Can you really be sure? Let me ask you this morning. It's a very simple question. What is your anchor? Who is your anchor? If your anchor is wrapped up in yourself, many people, their anchor is their good works and hoping I'm going to have enough good works to get me into heaven. Boy, I'm glad I don't have that anchor. I'd really be in strife, right? Uh, their anchor is, 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 I come to church every week, you know, and I hope that'll work out for me. That, that's a very insecure anchor, can I say. People got lots of, my, my parents were Christians, therefore that I hope to get in, you know, on the same basis. That's uh, not a very good anchor at all. Like, uh, when you think about all the anchors that people try to have, there is only one sure, safe anchor. And that's none other than Jesus himself. He is the one who has died, risen, ascended and glorified. Okay, Where is your anchor? Who is your anchor? It's, it, it's something for us to think about this morning. Let me just lead you in prayer. Oh, Father, you, you, you know our hearts in a way that we don't know our own hearts. You know the secret thoughts of our hearts where often we try to even hide them from ourselves. And we just pray this morning that you would, through your Spirit, enable us to see where our hearts really lie. Who is our anchor? Help us, Father, to face up to this. And, and if our anchor is not our Lord Jesus, then open our eyes to grasp and see the, full, the futility of the anchors that we have at this stage. And if our anchor is the Lord Jesus, then give us grace to grow in maturity and understanding of who our anchor is. Give us grace in the ups and downs to, to stay contented, to stay firm and to stay clearly focused on you and to deal with every situation as you would want us to deal with in a way that's going to bring honour and glory to you. Father, thank you that you've spoken so clearly. Give us grace to grab that word, hang on to that word as the example of Abraham who hung on to that word who had gone before us. For in Christ's name we ask it. Amen.